1: Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, December 31st. Happy New Year's Eve to all of our listeners out there who are on vacation enjoying those final moments of 2019 as we are about to ring in not only the new year, uh, but the new decade. And obviously, that's something at Cracked Rackets we are extremely excited about to help get you listeners ready. For the next year, next ten years of tennis, we have been all in on our off-season preview mode. On our Great Shot podcast, we've had our Best of the Decade series, where we've had guests such as Andrew Burton, Matt Zemek, Ben Rothenberg, Jamie McDonald, of course, talking about a litany of topics, reviewing the past decade of tennis, all the big storylines, results, and controversies. And of course, here on the mini break, we've been previewing the 2020 season, talking about the players that we think could be the most interesting, most consequential players of next year's season. Uh, yesterday we were fortunate enough to be joined by Sal Katz, son of Andy Katz, to discuss Amanda Nisimova, the rising young American woman who obviously made her first Grand Slam semifinal last year at the French Open and, uh, surprise, you know, shocked, surprise, shocked, I don't know, but really impressed is the word I was looking for so many of us throughout her run. Uh, today we bring Sal back on for part two. I said, give me one man, one woman you want to talk about and the guy he went with, Dennis Shapovalov. So that's who Sal and I are going to break down today. Obviously Shapovalov, we've talked about a bunch on this. Podcast over the past couple, you know, six eight weeks, but the way he ended the season so impressively, he got his first ATP title, I think in Stockholm. He makes that Paris Masters final before losing to Djokovic. He looked, you know, played really well in the Davis Cup as well. He looked great down the home stretch. So, you know, he's certainly a name we will all be excited to look for and look with. It. I know it's New Year's Eve. I don't want to waste any of your time. You all have plans to do so. With that in mind, we'll get right into our podcast with Sal Katz talking about Denis Shapovalov. Joining me once again on tonight's mini. Uh, break podcast, you recognize him from yesterday's episode, of course, Sal Cats, and we had <laughs> so much fun, Sal, on our first episode that yeah. I thought, hey, we'll bring you back for day two, and I know there are you know, we could probably do a breakdown, the two of us, of you know, hundreds of these players. They're all interesting for different reasons. Yeah. But to start tonight's podcast, again we picked one male, one female for you. You want to explain to our listeners why you went with Dennis Shapabala for today's episode?
2: Yeah, of course. Um he was so he's born in Canada. He's young. He's part of the next generation of men he had a great year and is now an established top twenty player. And he's extremely strong, a powerful, eclectic game that is so enjoyable to watch. And he's just fun on the court. And I think that he's definitely going to be one of the you know leading men of next the next j- decade.
0: Oh,
1: without a doubt. I think, especially yeah. the way he finished the year, as you mentioned, so strong yeah. down the home stretch. I mean, did he get a walkover into that final of the Paris Masters? Yes, but, you know, it's not every day. You, you look at the list of these next-gen guys who have competed in uh, in the yeah. Masters finals, and it's Zverev, Tsitsipas, hatchnov has that Paris title. Uh, I may be missing one other, you know, young guy. Medvedev, yeah. Born, yeah, Medvedev was born 1996 or later. But Denis Shapovalov right now, he ends his season as the top-ranked player under the age of 21 at number 15. Now, there's really three guys in that under 21 group who have pushed themselves ahead. That's Dennis, of course, Alex Dimenauer, who is uh, a month Mm -hmm. older than Dennis, but he's sitting right now at number 18 to end the year. And Felix Ogier-Aliasim a full year younger than both of those guys. He's at number 21. So I agree with you. I think for our listeners, Dennis is is an obvious name to watch. And you look at the things he did well uh, as we look at his 2019 season. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was really a tale of two seasons right because at yeah. the start of the year for the first borderline two-thirds of the season he, he was very difficult to watch a lot of first round losses a very streaky player and that's something if you've watched Shep evolve emerge over these past mm-hmm. uh, couple of years the firepower obviously so captivating but I mean to see him make the flip that he did it, it that's that's almost the biggest positive for me because for him to be at rock bottom, Sal, and the year the way he yeah. did, it was just so
2: impressive. I, I I totally agree. I mean, he started the year, I would argue, pretty good. You know, he made the third round of the Australian Open, took a set off of Novak Djokovic, made a few, won a few won a few uh, matches in Marseille, and uh, he made the quarters of Rotterdam, then had his big moment. Um, he also did well in Indian Wells beating Marion Cilic, but had his big moment um, at Miami. At, and then after that, he just kind of, fell off the face of the earth if you will Um, but to come back from that just such a slump and he you know Stockholm straight amazing tournament for him you had Paris, make him to the final Um, obviously the the Nadal walkover did help him but at the same time the level that he was able to produce against players like Fanini and Zverev really was evident that he was meant to get in that spot as well as um, the Davis Cup where he was able to lead his country to the final had that epic match against Matteo Berrettini three tie breaks over three and a half hours he was able to just come in clutch there and I guess, um, you know, can, if he's going to be able to keep the momentum going in 2020 is going to be the bigger question. But, you know, after he joined with Mikhail Eugenie, and since that pairing his level of sword, I think since from, Win, um, from Winston-Salem, um, and then the epic match against Gilman Feast at the U.S. Open that he fell short in still proves at the level that he can play at. And I think that was one of the, the kind of the moments of the year for him, even though he was able to, was very close to winning and he was unfortunately not able to. But that was definitely, I think, one of his matches of the year
1: uh you know you, you mentioned uh that Miami run and you're looking at the yeah. positives yes for him uh the positives from his 2019 season for him to make his third Masters semifinal, third year in a row he did it in 2017, we all remember that run he had in Canada mm-hmm. uh, in Madrid last year, he did it on the clay which was different, uh, and then for this year for him to have that result in Miami especially as you mentioned, third round Australian Open, fourth round Indian Wells semifinal in Miami, it was a really impressive start to yeah. the season and then, you know, the way he ended as well We it's not at the Masters level it's only, uh, I believe, a 250 event but he did get his first ATP title of his career yeah. and that's a monument. That's something you have to do if you want to ascend your way up the rankings. Yeah. of him, he got the title in October in Stockholm. Indoor hardcourt. So I'm from Michigan. Uh, he's from Canada. I can relate to. We play a lot of indoor <laughs> tennis in the north. That's yeah. what we do. And I mean, with his firepower, as we've mentioned, it's not a surprise to see him have that sort of success indoors. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, to deal with the struggle he did uh, in between, and we'll talk about this more when we get into the negatives, but you know, from Monte Carlo through uh, you know, Cincinnati. I guess Monte Carlo through Cincinnati, really, Uh, even through maybe, yeah, before that, you, before uh, I guess through, I'm trying to think Winston Salem comes after Cincinnati. So yes, through Cincinnati is what we're going to go with. Yeah. He goes first round Monte Carlo loss, first round Madrid loss, second round Italian open loss, first round Wimbledon loss, uh, first round French open loss, excuse me, first round Wimbledon loss as well. Second round loss in Canada, second round loss in Cincinnati. Now, of course there were some matchups for him that you look at the loss in context and sure they may, Makes sense, but for a guy that we had circled for so long to have that stretch and then to come back the way he did at the U.S. Open, I know yeah. he lost his five-set match to Gael Monfils, but that was one of the best matches of the tournament and the level yeah. he displayed there, the level he displayed in Winston Salem. I think he made the semifinals there uh, before mm-hmm. ultimately losing to Hubie Hercatch, and that was on a day where he played back-to-back matches. Yeah, you. As always, I think the biggest positive for me for a guy who's still under the age of 21 is it's very evident, Sal, and tell me if you agree or not, that when Denis Shapovalov is clicking, it's very clear he's got a top 10 game, top 10, maybe even top 5 talent already.
2: Oh, definitely. I think he will be leading that pack. Felix, Alex, Menard, we've talked about them. They definitely have the chance to be like under um, um, the next big three. I know Felix was heavily talked about in the middle of the season I'd argue the Canadians went back and forth off each other um, throughout <laughs> the year um but I definitely yeah, shop olive definitely has the mentality the game just to go that distance um he's extremely physically fit you know he's able to go those five setters take those three and a half matches and you know he definitely is able to be able he's pr- able to produce that level and I think that you know throughout the year yes he had his faults in the middle of the year which we're going to talk about but I think especially in the be- beginning and tail end of the year you know he He just really outperformed a lot of people on that tour.
1: Oh, without question. And again, you look at some of the positive statistic wise. I mean, mm-hmm. the things that jump out: the first serve plus first forehand combination for him so effective. Yeah. He was the twenty second overall server by the ATP serving rating metric. Twenty second in aces per match. I think he was a little over seven per match, which is really good. Fifteenth uh, in terms of first serve per, uh, first serve points won on the year. And again, in terms of putting that in context, what that number looked like: he made seven or he won seventy six percent of his first serve points, speaking to the fact that when he's able to play plus one tennis, which so much of the modern game is based off of, he's got the game to do that. Uh, you know, I don't have volley statistics for mm-hmm. him, but it's also very clear that this is not a guy who's afraid to move forward. He will hit the volley, hit the overhead, hit the one-handed backhand on the rise and follow it in. He wants to take time away from your from you as his opponent, wants to make you uncomfortable. And again, you know, 15th in first serve points won, uh, 15th in total percentage of service games won for him on the tour. Uh, he played 694 service games, won 84% of them. That's obviously outstanding. I mean, the things he does well at this point, he does really well. And I also think one of the positives we have to take from it is that, as we mentioned with this mid-season lull he had, it was very clear whatever was going on wasn't working, you know, personally yeah. coaching-wise, whatever. He was going through a slump. So to bring on a Mikhail Yusny, an experienced voice, a yeah. former top-ten player, it speaks to his maturity. It speaks to him growing into his uh, place on the ATP Tour.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think at the beginning of the year he was with, um, I think his name was Rob Steckley. He was a good coach for him. They had a good time. I remember you know, on his Instagram they would always post a little mini-vlogs. They had a good time, but you know, the, I, I just think that he wasn't enough for Shapo to move to the next step. And then when, after Miami, um, around the Monte Carlo swing, he let Rob Steckley go. He, I think, was under his mom for a while looking for a new coach and just wasn't able to find something that clicked for him, wasn't able to elevate to that next step. I think it's, it's tough when you have a parent um, – also as your coach you know we talked about Anna Simova like losing her father was took a big toll on her tennis career at the end of the year um we I mean there's the exception of Apostolos Tsitsipas the father of Stefanos um but you know you really have to look at when Shapovalov was able to meet Mikhail Ushni and finally do that they were able to click so well and I think that you know post Winston salem like we've been talking about just everything was working for him and I think that I mean he knew that it was I would argue, yes, it was. Obviously, something physically on the court wasn't clicking, but as well, his mentality and the behind the scenes on the court as well needed to be fixed, too. And when he finally got that to fix, that was when things started to work again.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned there were things he needed to work on because that gets into the negatives from the season, and we've obviously talked about the in- inconsistent play across uh, mm-hmm. you know parts of the season. You look at his record this year on the clay; uh, he goes four and six. That de- that's a devolve from his eight and six record last year. Zero and three on the grass; two and four last year at the ATP level. Clearly, grass is not a surface he has mastered yet. And in fact, you know by comparison in terms of ATP matches, he's sixty nine and forty nine on hard courts, twelve and twelve on clay three and nine on grass now that's still a small sample size but obviously that's something to be concerned about and then yeah you mentioned it uh there there are times when he's erratic still that there are times when he's can't rein in that firepower and a good encapsulation of this, you know, in terms of double faults. He's 7th on tour in double faults per match at 4.1 per match. 56% in terms of first serve percentage. He only made 60% of his first serves on the year, and that's fine, you know, when you're winning 76% of those points. But if you're winning 76% of those points and you're making 70% of your first serves, I mean, you are... I'm sorry for swearing, Sal, but that's a little better. Like, you're going to do a little bit better in terms of how you're you know, just, it's going to be easier for you to win quick points. It's going to be easier for you to dominate your serving games. And given uh, that this is a player who's already had so much success on his first serve, again, the plus one, his willingness to move forward, it's evident. It's about cleaning things up. It's about reigning in that power. Anyone, you know, at a top 20 level can blast the yeah. ball 120 miles per hour, but knowing when to, uh, knowing when not to, that's half the battle. And as we mentioned, he figured that out much more so in the last third of the, year year, Uh, but it's still, it feels like Shapovalov, especially these first three years, it's been so hot and cold and moving into the next season, you would like to see that stabilize, right?
2: Well, yeah, definitely. He had a slump mid-year when he barely was able to win a match and being prone to those slumps is a warning sign of his inconsistency throughout his whole career. We've seen that evident in the last three years, you know, losing to players such as Ricardis Barrancas in Wimbledon and Jan-Leonard multiple times across the season, like the same opponent just wasn't able to click anything. I mean, something's obviously going on mentally, too, there. Um, I also agree that, you know, it it can be a little bullshit sometimes when, you know, he has that shot, that one-handed backhand, when he jumps uh, up and hits that. And it's obviously fan-favorite, crowd-favorite, but you have to look at the fact that, you know, there's a time and place for that. And, you know, he was able to master that at the beginning of the year. He did it a bunch of times in Barcelona. I remember that match against Christian Garin. There was, like, three highlight shots there in the first three games. But then just wasn't able to continue that consistency throughout it, and I think was trying a little bit too much, you know. All of his like gaffs, you would say, in the big, middle of the year were just simple timing issues, you know, where he just wasn't fully there. And I think that that's something that obviously he needs to work on his mentality. He's amazing to watch, but needs to make sure he's continuing to stay focused throughout the match. You know, sometimes he can rev himself up on too much of the crowd and almost burns out. Um, you know, Monfils match at the U.S. Open uh, where he saved the match point, got the crowd going, and then just wasn't able to pick it up in the fifth set. You know, there's just there's things to work on for him. Yeah,
1: I think that erraticness, that inconsistency is epitomized in his returning stats and Again, the ATP uses a serve rating, a return rating. I can't tell you the exact uh, way they crunch that number. But for Shapovalov, he's 48th overall in return stats. And the fact that he wins—he tw- uh, was 26th in terms of first uh, serve return points one, but 67th in terms of second serve points one. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a guy who can produce as powerful ground strokes as he can on a whim, that just proves he's being too erratic with that second serve return. Yeah. He's going for too much when, Evidently, he does not need to because at any point in a, in any rally, if you give Denis Shapovalov a sitter, he has the opportunity to turn on it to create. And the match that really comes to mind for me uh, that almost epitomized that hot and cold is the Alex Zverev match he played in Paris, where Zverev managed to steal that second set. But yeah. under no circumstances should that have been a three set match. Without you know, Shapovalov had dominated that that match from start to finish. But it was that he had a streak of errors to end that second set that allowed Zverev to steal it from him and. Ultimately, you know, you look on in terms of our next question, the things to improve for Shapovalov moving into 2020. I think that's why, if you don't mind me speaking for you, that's why we as tennis fans are so excited about him. Because again, for three years now, the talent so evident. The results—they are almost be—you know, three uh, Masters semifinals as well as a final, a fourth round at the U.S. Open in 2017, still his best result. But two third round appearances on the hard court slams uh, this. Past year, I mean, again, sixty nine and forty nine on hard courts overall in yeah. his career, but thirty one and seventeen on a hard court in twenty nineteen. It speaks to the fact that Dennis Shapovalov, when consistent, is very clearly, at least in my opinion, a top fifteen, maybe even top ten hard court player at this point already on the tour.
2: Oh, definitely, he's definitely up there. He's he's proven himself multiple times throughout the past couple of years. You know, in Canada, he makes the semifinal. Miami makes the semifinal. Nakaseta of Djokovic in Australia makes the fourth round of the U.S. Open beating Tonga in 2017. So I am a little out of order there. But, you know, I think for 2020, he needs to improve. I already talked about a little bit on um, his mentality. You know, I talked about burnout during the Monfils match. Um, also, just consistency overall. He needs to avoid large slumps during the year, find that shot that works, his backhand, and really have that go-to shot. Because sometimes he's just, he he has it, it's just when to use it. And it's okay to take risks, but during the middle part of the season, Shapoval, I just think, just made too many. Um, and I, you know, I also like to talk about the fact that he needs to, like, win a, I think he needs to get to that next level in the 500 level, in the Masters level, and especially at the Grand Slams. I think he needs to crack a quarterfinal for the confidence level to really kick in. I think that it's important that he wins a 500 next year, maybe, or in the next two years. He needs to evidently build up his title, titles just so that he has a backbone almost on him that he knows he can do it because, you know, when everyone gets their first title, you know, you don't know if they're going to get another one because it's kind of hard to recreate that feeling. Um, but I definitely think that if he can make that Grand Slam quarterfinal as well as just get over the semifinal slump, you know, one in seven in semifinals is not the best record. Um <laughs> So I think that there's a few things he could work on. I think it's a lot of mentality, though. I think he just needs he builds himself up too much during the match. And then when it's time to close out or when it's time to, you know, put it in a, a high high gear, it's just he's not there
1: to, you know, you look at the points he has to defend yeah. up to, uh, you know, through Indian Well or through Miami, I suppose, which is really the first portion of the year that he had success. in. there are a couple that third round at the Australian Open. Although that, given that he'll be seeded this year, you one would hope he could at least match that. But yeah. I mean, he doesn't have a better result than a quarterfinal at a 250 level, I think, uh, to defend. Uh, oh no, quarterfinals. Sorry, in Rotterdam last year at the ATP 500 mm-hmm. uh, before Indian Wells. But outside of that, if he can continue. The level he showed at the end of last season, there is no reason why he can't pick up points, you know, or exceed the amount he had last year over this first third stretch of the season. And given how bad he was from, you know, uh, Miami to even. Winston Salem, you could argue there's a five, you know, four or five month stretch where he could accumulate so many more points. So for me, the thing to improve is week in, week out consistency in 2020. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even need to, again, it's not. I don't need to. I I agree with you. To win a 500 would be a step forward, right? That's the next level Mm -hmm. of tournament for him to progress to. I completely agree with that point. But it's to cut down the first round losses, it's to make sure you don't have a stretch where you lose first round Monte Carlo, first round Barcelona, first round Madrid, second round Rome. Uh, second round, or quarterfinals Lyon, but his second match there, first round Paris, first round Stuttgart, first round London, first round Wimbledon. I mean, you can't have a stretch where you lose six of your first seven, uh, six out of seven first matches in tournaments. That's just, that's not, you can't do that and expect to be a top 20 player. But the fact that he has that stretch and he still ended 2019 inside of the top 20, again, it's a testament to his talent. And it's why I think when you're circling players who could make a jump, I don't think Denis Shapovalov has proven incompetent on clay thus far in his career. I think he yeah. could be a very solid clay court player. And that's why I think we both agree that he is certainly someone who could just ascend the rankings simply by being con- more consistent in 2020.
2: Oh, he definitely could... Um get to that level. I think he could, you know, we'll talk about best worst case scenarios, but I think that his game is totally there to be able to do. I think 2020 could be the year for the next gen. We've talked, I think a lot of people have been talking about, maybe this is the year that, you know, like next gen uh, can win a slam. I don't think it'll be Shapovalov next year. I, don't, I think he needs a little bit more time, but you know, I think that there's definitely going, we're going to see a momentum shift the next few years as Federer and Nadal and Djokovic will all retire. Um, but I think that what's going to be interesting to watch with Shapovalov next year is can he can he progress at the hard courts better than he did in the early season? Um, because you know you look at Australia, that's a perfect hunting ground for him, and he just wasn't able to capitalize when he played in Auckland and in Australia. He did decent, um, but just not as well as I think he could have. And then also you have that whole indoor European swing, and he's not he's not a guy that's going to go to South America. He's going to stay in Europe um, during February before Indian Wells. So he definitely has the skills and has the you know. The game to win on Indoor Hardcore, we've already seen that. He's made the a final of a Masters in Indoor Hard, and he's won his first title there. You know, he has a pretty good record. So I think that if he can prove himself there, if he can continue the momentum he had from the end of 2019 into 2020 for that first hardcourt swing into Indian Wells and Miami, then that will really prove that he is, you know, going to be one to watch out for in 2020 and one that's going to be, you know, a staple of the year.
1: So you mentioned that results and that, that, well, that's, you know, we can get right into that best case, worst case. I pre- Again, Sal, you're a veteran at this point. You know where we're headed <laughs> with this conversation. Uh, but so you you sort of listed it out there. And again, I really appreciate your point of the fact that winning an ATP 500, that next level up, that would be a big jump for him. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm certain that a best case scenario for Denis Shapovalov involves him winning some sort of title on the ATP two yeah. this year. Now, I'm not saying that there's a Grand Slam title in his future. It's probably <laughs> yeah. still a little too soon to expect him to show the sort of cons- uh, the sort of firepower and just uh, dangerous how dangerous he plays how thin the margins can be to expect him to carry that level where he's on the winning side over the course of 2 weeks uh but in terms of best case scenario for him and again this is a guy who's under the age of 21 and while that does sound young you look at guys like Rafa Djokovic yeah. Federer if he wants to be held you know if that's the sort of career he's aspiring to which obviously he is you do want, you know, all of those guys had either made a slam semifinal or won their first slam by the time they did turn 21. And so this is his age 21 season. The game has changed. There's no doubt, you know, it's more yeah. physical, all these different things. But for you, what does the best case scenario for Shapovalov look like? Is there a master's run in there, which we've seen him do before? You know, what to you, Denis Shapovalov leaves 2020 saying this went as well as possible, short of obviously winning a grand slam because that would be ridiculous.
2: Oh yeah, of course. Um, I think for the best case scenario, Shop of Olive could make the top ten. I could see him in the seven to nine range there, even in or ten. Um, he could win a Masters. I could see that happening at Indian Wells, Miami, maybe Madrid if he can pick his clay game up, and then I, probably in Canada or Paris um, and reach past that. You know that third round slump we've seen him in. Uh, like he made the fourth round at U.S. Open one time, but you know I think if he can break that, go to the quarterfinal at U.S. Open or Australia um that would be a big step for him I don't think he's ready on the clear grass for the five-step matches to go that far in there but I definitely think if he can do that that would be the best case scenario he'd be able to really prove that he's meant to be there that he is there to you know compete that he is going to be you know that that he's going to be in the future he's going to be you know up there with Sitsipas and if he's that they're going to be a, a big deal and I yeah
1: no, I, I really like that. I, I agree. Second week of a slam because he made that fourth round in twenty seventeen at the U.S. Open, but yeah. it was so long ago. So to see him, there's no reason. I mean, we've seen him win a two fifty event. We've seen him make semifinals, finals runs over the course of a you know seven, eight, nine, ten day Masters event. There's no reason he can't put together one really solid week of tennis at the at a hard court slam. Make a fourth round, maybe even if a draw breaks right, make a quarterfinal. And yeah. I do think for him, second week of a slam at at least one tournament. Again, we've gone through the list of guys. Tsitsipas, uh, Zverev, Medvedev, Chung... Hachinov, Kyle Edmund, and I guess Luca Pui, who's a 94, but still, those are the guys 94 and later, and Andre Rublev, excuse me, and Berrettini now as well, uh, who have made second weeks of Grand Slams. And again, that's from 1996 on. That's not a very extensive list. There are tons of guys on there uh, who I haven't mentioned who are, I'm certain yeah. will be fiending to make them a second week themselves uh, over the course of this season. But again, you look at uh, Dennis Shapovalov and just... It's the firepower. It's the fact that when he plays well, he can he can dominate a match. We've seen him do it all the way back in twenty seventeen yeah. at the Rogers Cup, right? When he beat Rafa. That yeah. was the most that was just such an outstanding, captivating result. We saw it in Paris, uh, the way he played again against Alex Yrev playing so well there. The way he beat Gael Monfils two and two in the quarterfinals in a match yeah. where had Gael Monfils won, he would have qualified for the World Tour Finals. Uh so that was a pressure match for his opponent, and Shapovalov just took it to him. And so I agree with you. I, I think the best case scenario for Denis Shapovalov does involve him making one, maybe two semifinals on hardcourt Masters events, at le- you know, a second week at a slam, um, and hopefully fewer first-round losses, you know, uh, maybe get a win on the grass this year. That would be yeah. very helpful. for. I'm sure uh, he's like, yeah, just like one, maybe two wins on the grass. That's an upgrade. Um, but on the flip side, you look at the worst-case scenario, and i mean is there's a world where the you know the floor falls out from under him right where the mm-hmm. slapping and it just it doesn't work and i suppose that's always going to be the catch 22 of being a Shapovalov fan is as good as it looks when it's good, it can get very slap happy. And it can, you know, the backhand starts yeah. shanking, the forehand goes a little bit long. I He starts getting angry on court. Although I will say in terms of going backwards, a positive for him, I did think he took a leap mentally on the court, keeping things slightly, yeah. you know, less blow ups, less yelling at his parents in the player box. Um, but there is still a scenario where, again, that forehand just goes a little long, and it's just like, all right, that's a first-round loss, and it happens another week in a row and another week in a row, yeah. and those first-round yeah. losses start to accumulate, and for that to happen a second year in a row, I don't think he's going to drop out of the top 50. I just think you know, he, there's always going to be one to two tournaments throughout a year because of how streaky he is where he just goes on a run. Um, but the worst-case scenario for me is that the, it's a repeat clay through grass season where he loses again <laughs> six out of seven first matches.
2: You and I do think alike. That is exactly what I was going to say. He's unable. <laughs> he's unable to gain the consistency. He falls into that slump like he did um between um April and September uh, or August, and he doesn't win a title. Drops out of the top thirty, and he does is not able to produce well at the Grand Slams. Less than third round um at all of them, and he just isn't able to pick up the obvious wins like we talked about. Uh, Ricardis Barrancas on grass isn't exactly the. Scariest player, Berankis is a much more seasoned indoor quarter. Jan Leonard Struif, multiple times you're unable to crack a player that many times, and maybe it's just not going to happen for you. If he's not able to get, he's not able to get those kinds of wins where he's not able to finally figure something out. Then, I mean, I could see his year not being that great, and maybe he'll help. Maybe he'll have a great beginning of the year and then just like peak and then fall off the mountain. You know, there's going to be a lot of wiggle room for him to go back and forth between the year. He's he, yeah, he's a streaky player. He's going to go you know, semi-final in Bogat and, um, you know, he's going to go semi-final in Monte Carlo and then, like, lose first round in Barcelona. to an easier player. Like, there's just gonna, that's always going to be the way that he plays. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with you there. And uh, again, points-wise, ranking-wise, he really doesn't have that many points to defend up through Wimbledon. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, so... In terms of the bottom falling out of his ranking, again, one good week at a 500. I guess that Miami Masters semifinal, that's going to hurt when it falls off his record, but there are so many ways at 500-level events or at slams Mm -hmm. that he can make up for those points. So unless it's a season from hell, unless there's injuries that start uh, adding up, it's hard to really see him dropping off rankings-wise. But I agree with you, that streakiness, uh, it's always going to be a factor. And that's why, given how well he was playing— I was desperate, Sal, to see him play <laughs> those next-gen finals at the end of the yeah. year. What do you think about that?
2: I mean, he it's happened the past two years, actually, where he's just been out of fatigue. And this year, I think it's more understandable because last year, I think he had lost to, uh, uh, what's his face, Richard Gasquet, uh, Richard Gasquet at the Paris Masters. Just, it was a straight defeat. And then he just wasn't able to play. And then he went vacationing with his family. Not that that's bad, but, you know, I just think that there was... Maybe he was just burned and tired and, you know, just ready to call it a day. But I think this year there was more of a a scenario where I could see that happening. You know, he had an amazing end of the year and he didn't really want to mess that up. And then he went to the Davis Cup and then was able to produce some magic. So I think I think skipping the next gen was the right choice for him. I think he needed a chance to just catch up mentally and kind of understand what had just happened the past few weeks for him and how like everything had just gotten gotten better, you know?
1: Yeah, no, that's look. That's the very mature answer, and um, there, there's no doubt it's understandable why he didn't want yeah. to play that event. It wasn't, you know, he's not afraid of taking losses. If anything, you know, I'd be like, yeah, I'll go to Milan, make some money, and go home. That sounds like a very nice way to start my off season. Um, but yeah, for for all the the amount of matches he was playing at the end of the year, given that it was week in, week out, and the results kept coming, that's a testament to okay. It wasn't just a one-week blip like we saw the previous two yeah. years. It wasn't just, hey, I'm going to make the semifinals in Monte Carlo. I'm going to make the semifinals in Canada. It was a prolonged six-week stretch for him at the end of the year, you know, yeah. from Winston-Salem all the way really through uh, that that uh, Paris Masters result. And, Again, and and plus Davis Cup, which you mentioned at the top, to see him uh, not—I think he lost to Dimenauer in three sets, but other than the end, to Rafa in the end, but to beat guys like Hachinov, Berrettini, and Fritz at the Davis Cup, it speaks to he was that confident down the home stretch. He belonged. In those matches, and you can even see it in Laver Cup. I know he lost the doubles match. He played with Jack Sock, and he may have lost another match along the way there. As I, I don't know if he played singles in the, in the Laver Cup. He did Cup. play,
2: yeah. He played singles. First set the team, match. right? Yeah, 11-13 he lost in the tiebreak to Dominic So It was a close. It was close. And, and it just felt like,
1: again, and we've mentioned this throughout the podcast, something clicked for him at the end of the year. And it's very easy to circle the partnership with Mikhail Yuzheny as a, as a sentinel moment, as a, something where just, okay, the, I have the right person shaping my game now, advising me to go along with what is a very obvious, a natural gift to be on the tennis court, the firepower, all the different things we've talked about. Um, And it, it, it goes to say, I think we both agree to wrap up this best case, worst case scenario question that Dennis Shapovalov 2020, why we're both so excited, is that all signs are pointing much more so towards the best-case scenario as opposed to, say, a Borna Chorich or, you know, a guy like... Oh, Mikhail yeah, that was just, like, for that guy. Yeah, just like down the stretch, things just went horribly wrong for both of them.
2: Oh, definitely. I think Shapovalov has a much, much brighter year ahead of him. Yeah, I will, I will agree with you. Borna Chorich's year was very rough. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that... Yeah, all signs are pointing to the best year um, for Shapovalov. I think every year it's just we're going to see something bad, something good. But I think maybe the good might just get a little better. Yeah,
1: I certainly hope so uh, as fans. All right, I'm going to, just like we did with Anisimova, we'll end here. I'm going to name some uh, similar age players in his ranking range. You tell me if you think he's going to end the year higher or lower than them. Sound good? Okay. All right, got again, the, these, these are the players. Right now, there are 10 players uh, younger than me, born 1996 or later, which, as you know, are now know, Sal, that's the arbitrary date we use here. I don't <laughs> consider myself current-gen. I feel like I've got to be next-gen. I think my my peak's still ahead of me. <laughs> so if you're younger yeah. than me, I'm not saying you're on tour yet. But I think we can safely say, and here are the guys in the top 10, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Svirov. I would still put th- those three a cut above Shapoval. Do you think that's fair?
2: Yeah, I mean— the thing with Zverev is that he will just be flaky next year. But I, th- you know, oh, you
1: bite your tongue. That's the first thing we fully disagreed on, Sal.
2: So. I, I'm not a Zverev fan. I'm going to be honest. I mean, I, he's <laughs> he's much he's very boring to watch. I'm going to be honest. But you know, oh! I think, <laughs> I mean, I think that you know, he'll still be probably above Shapovalov unless he has a dream year, like can make all these finals and everything. But again, with with Zverev too. He has to crack that wall of the Grand Slam quarterfinals. I mean, he's made it twice at the French, but just needs that extra step there, too. I mean, but Medvedev Tsitsipas, they're still having their breakouts, and I think that they will be there, but Zverev will be above them.
1: (laughs) Yes, I I guess my thing with Zverev, I've said this before, but... you watch a guy that tall, that physically gifted move around the court the way he does, strike the ball, the way he does the backhand, maybe the most beautiful shot of any of these young guys we've, you know, any of these next-geners, his backhand may be the single best stroke. Uh, If I told you he's made the fourth round at all three slams and then the quarterfinals at the French Open, would that surprise you?
2: No. He has the game too, but he needs to take that next step. And I think that with a lot of these players, Medvedev's taking the next step. Sitsapas so has taking the next step. He did have that mid season slump like Shapovalov, but they've all taken that next step. Whereas.
1: I'm, Zverev he was not. the 2018 year end title champion. He won the World Tour Finals 20. I'm just saying. He's the guy with no, the disasters no, on this list. he's the. I just. I, look, I don't know why we're litigating Zverev on the Shapovalov. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, I'm the one. I, he, I, it's, it's, it's a soft spot for me. It's a sensitive spot.
2: Yeah, no, I know. I mean, it's, that. I'm a Shapovalov fan. I'm a definite big Tsitsipas fan. If you were coming over to Titsapas, we, we'd, we'd be in a squabble, but, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I would not. I, the only thing, I, I mean, yeah, no, I'm not going to take a shot at Stefanos. I would never do that to a guest <laughs> I am so fond of. Um, all right, here's a guy who's in the top 10, but he had the dream, you know, he had best case 2019. Matteo yeah. Bertini, who right now is at number eight. Could you see Shapovalov ending the year above him?
2: Yeah, I mean, I know that's a big prediction, but, yeah. you know.
1: We agree. Baratini,
2: Beretti- he definitely had an amazing year. I could see him doing as good, if not better. But the problem is he's just such a big guy. Like, you know, you see players like that who just hit big, who just are always like, you know, Bianca Andrescu too, where I know we're comparing man and woman, but like she's she's like a big hitter and everything. Like she had a lot of injury. And Matteo Berrettini, I could see him having a lot of injury in his career just because of the way he hits, his physicality. So, you know, if he doesn't have as good of a year as this year, I could definitely see Shapovalov surpassing him.
1: Yeah, he's the Luke Kuechly of the uh, <laughs> ATP too. Or just he's so big. It, it is literally like what? Do you know who Malik Jaziri is? Is that before your time? Yeah, Malik
2: Jaziri. He's yeah. the
1: Tunisian guy. Him and Berrettini have the same body. They're doppelgangers. Um, so it's yeah. really fun to watch. And yeah, I agree. I just think, I think, the uh, forehand, the serve for Berrettini probably a little better at this point than the forehand serve combination of Shapovalov but I think the yeah. other things the the movement and the extracurriculars the improvisational skills I think Shapovalov does a little bit better than Berrettini Berrettini also has so many points to defend uh, throughout the year and obviously if you want to be a top 10 player you've got to get used to defending points throughout your career yeah. I think he had three titles this past year that semifinal run to the US Open I, I think he made that fourth round at Wimbledon as well that's really tough to defend so I agree I think Shapovalov's best case in 2020 may be a better season than what Berrettini had this past year and I mean if that's what you're saying for Shapovalov, that's high expectations obviously but I agree with that take there um all right Karen Hatchinov ends the year number 17 I affectionately refer to him at this podcast as Kachinov because if we're gonna butcher the pronunciation we might as well go all the way in uh who ends the year ranked higher him or Shapovalov?
2: well funny sidebar I have been I told you last time I was compared to Karen Hachinov so I've been given the name (laughs) uh Sal Kachinov um (laughs) But, you know, I think that with him, he's, he's again, such a flaky guy, too, where he's just, you know, he had a pretty good, pretty good, he had an amazing 2018 where he, just, he was able to just really prove his worth. Like, that was an intense match against Nadal at the U.S. Open that year, like, almost went four hours. I think maybe it was over four hours, where, like, he just really was able to prove himself. And then, obviously, the Paris Masters title. But this year just was not his year. He made the quarterfinals of the French a big breakthrough for him. But besides that, he just did not perform well, you know, losing first round on his title defense. You know, I could see him not performing as well, and I could see Shapovalov above him next year.
1: See, I think Berrettini's worst-case scenario looks a lot like what Hatchinov had this year. And I swear, since this is a comparison, you may may remember this match. Had Hatchinov beaten a cramping Nadal at Indian Wells, I think it was the quarterfinals, Nadal's knee, I mean, Hatchinov was up a set and a break, and Nadal's knee was not working. And Hatchinov lost that match, and I think things kind of spiraled from there. Um, So I would say this, though. I think physically, best of five sets, Hatchnov is just so gifted. I mean, to be four, move the way he does, especially yeah. on both clay and a hard court, it's special. And so, I think that's the the, the zone for Shapovalov. I think Hatchnov, a little bit more consistent of the other. I think... I don't know. The the real comparison, the last one I'll go with, it'll be close, but right now he's number 23. He was injured for the first half of last year, but I think these two guys have fire powers that would match one another. Uh, They've got the floppy blonde hair. They've also both got massive forehands. Number 23, Andre Rublev versus, uh, versus Shapovalov. Who do you see ending this season better?
2: Oof, I mean. This is a fun
1: one, right? Very, very similar. I would say the difference. Sorry to, I ask you a question, that I'm going to answer at first. Sal, welcome to the mini break. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, for Rublev, he's a basher. There's no denying that. But why I would say Shapovalov a little bit higher is again. The volley, the willingness to move forward, the the multitude of skills Shapovalov has available to him on the court. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a little wider gate than Rublev. And so while I love Rublev's forehand, and again, Rublev FA, if you're going to go watch two people hit, go watch those two hit forehands because it's different than anything else you'll ever see or hear yeah. a tennis ball sound like. But I think Shapovalov, and this is why he's on the top of this next-gen cohort and why we spent a full episode talking about him, because it's the wide variety of skills, right? He's not just yeah. a ball basher.
2: I mean, yeah, I do agree. Shapo, uh, Shapovalov just has more pep, or, you know, mm-hmm. more, just, just more in his game. But, you know, you have to look at guys like Andrei Rublev where they just know what's going on, I would say. I know that, you know, he just knows what to do and knows when to do it. He has extremely well timing, you know, made the quarterfinals of the U S open. He in 2017, and you know, he made that run to the Hamburg final, knocked a set off of Basilashvili, who was also a basher. You know, you look at that guy, but you know, I think that with Andre Rublev, I do agree that Shapovalov will be above him, but Andre Rublev will definitely, I think, crack the top 20 next year. If he's able to continue, like a lot of I've talked about on um, with Shapovalov, if he's able to continue that level into 2020. There's no reason why he couldn't be in the top 20, or in the top 10. You know, I could say I know that's a bold stance, but you know, I mean, he, he definitely has the game. I think the injury kind of took him out of like, you know, oh the good Russians were Medvedev, Hatchinov. I think we have to remember that Andrei Rublev is like definitely there and he's going to be a big part of the next decade. I could see him performing extremely well.
1: See, this is why you will always have an invitation to come back on this podcast because we're <laughs> locked up on that one. I completely agree and I will make the point of uh, before we wrap here that Uh, I think one of the reasons why we as tennis fans can be so excited about this next-gen cohort is because from like 2006 to 2012, there was a streak of Junior Slam champions as well as World Junior number 1s who just straight Mm -hmm. up, they didn't pan out. Uh, on the ATP side, I should say, not on the w- WTA side, but on the ATP side, they just were a little bit short. Guys like the Donald Youngs of the world, the Jack Sox of the world. I know those guys are both Americans, but they stand out in particular. Or like the Gianluigi Quincy's, who again, a little bit before your time. That's a ninety-five or near and dear to my heart. Yeah, uh, th- those guys, and obviously Dimitrov, Rayonich, That generation gets talked about enough. But you look at this list, and Medvedev, Hatchinov, not really top juniors, but Tsitsipas, and Baratini as well, but Cetin Zverev, Shapovalov, Dimonauer, FAA, Rublev, Chorich, Fritz, mm-hmm. Opelka, Guerin. These were all guys who, if you were a fan of junior tennis, if you were a fan of tennis over these past 10 years, you've known their names since the beginning, and they've all yeah. begun to pan out. And I really think that's beneficial. It shows that, you know, these guys understand what's expected of them. They've had pressure on them their whole lives. And again, for Dennis Shapovalov to end the year the way he did. It was simply special, so I agree with you. I think he flirts with the top ten a little bit. I don't know if he ends the season in there. There are just a lot of good players still. Yeah. Uh, but if there's a brief run for him, you know, a second week run, maybe even he's the guy who makes a semifinal at the Australian Open. Since there's always a weird one, um, it wouldn't shock me at all.
2: Oh no, any anything would would not shock me. I mean, right now we're going through an evolution in both men's and women's tennis where we're still looking for this next big three in Boulder still looking for the you know, the next Queen of of women's tennis following Serena. Like I think multitude of options, um, myriad opportunities for all of these guys next year and um in the next decade. And I definitely think this will be a really fun decade and a really just awesome awesome time to be a tennis fan.
1: Oh, without a doubt. I completely agree with you. And, you know, at, as I mentioned, Sal, at any point in this decade, should you want to come on, talk a little bit more <laughs> tennis with us, you are more than welcome to do so. Um, all right, since I know I, you mentioned nothing would surprise you, I'll t- what would surprise me if we, if, if Rafa – I mean, unless we get a Djokovic here. I guess if Federer wins a slam in the 2020s, that will surprise me. If we don't get a new slam champion ugh, in 2020, will it surprise me? I want to say yes, but the sad part is no. It really wouldn't surprise me. You're right. There's a a wide variety of scenarios we can be ready to as fans as we head into the 2020 season. But Sal, again, thank you so much for taking the time over these past two days to come on the podcast. Chat a little young uh, young, uh, studs with me uh, in the tennis world (laughs) uh, for, again, and uh, I seriously mean this, Sal, uh, for any time you want to come back on the podcast, you are more than welcome to. Thank you. I would love to come back yeah of course we would love to have you take care enjoy the end of your year and of course happy new year to you and your family
2: happy new year to you thank you very much of course take care Sal. take care
1: hope you enjoyed our conversation today discussing Dennis Shapovalov and again I want to give a huge shout out and a big thank you to Cats for going back-to-back back, uh, days with me obviously for a 14 year old to be as knowledgeable enthusiastic and you know passionate about the game of tennis it speaks to the fact that there is a cohort of young fans who it's breaking in with I'm still 24 I'm young I'm a fan and yeah is one of those captivating young talents who I think my generation is going to really enjoy, watch thrive over this next decade of tennis throughout the 2020s. Uh, and there are so many talented players that we are looking forward to watching throughout the 2020s. And if, if you've missed our coverage of any of those players, be sure to go check out our website, crackedrackets.com, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter. You know, for the more immediate updates, it's at crackedrackets for this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, cracked interviews podcast. Like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. Look, it's almost Australian Open time. You don't want to be the fan that's not ready for the year's first Grand Slam, and I promise you a thorough listening of our, two of our many podcasts will help get you ready. I am aware we've had the Isner Racket Giveaway Challenge. That challenge has since expired, but it's still not too late for you to go leave a message, leave a little review subscription on there. We would still very much appreciate it, and we do have a winner in mind. Uh, we just want to make it a special announcement, and so I'm going to save to do that with one of our uh, co-hosts, either Jamie or Max, so be on the lookout for that. Later in the week Huge shout out as always To our super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff Who have a f- Of an editing job to do uh, Before we sign off I should say Happy New Year To all of our listeners By the time you hear this uh, You will either be listening to it On December 31st Or you will hear it When it's the New Year So Westhoff Before we wind up I'm going to after give you One more task to do this year Give me a New Year's Happy New Year sound effect please <coughs> Yeah, seriously, we want to thank all of you fans for all of the support you have given us throughout this year. Uh, Cracked Rackets wouldn't have continued, wouldn't have been, you know, thrived throughout 2019 and be moving forward looking for the big jumps we can make in 2020. Obviously, becoming a part of the tennis channel podcast network all of those many different things doesn't happen without the support and commitment of you fans that keep listening day in day out so we really appreciate all of that but for my wonderful co-host Sal Katz, who again back-to-back days that was awesome for our super producers max fligner and daniel westoff and from our entire teams at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin happy new year to everyone and you know what we say that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow thanks everyone